If you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to Titus chapter 2. We're continuing in our series in Titus, looking at this one verse and breaking out this one important, powerful phrase that Paul highlights. Be focusing on verse 13, but I'm going to read verses 11 through 14. This is the word of God. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray that he would teach us this morning. Heavenly Father, we believe in your Holy Spirit. And we need your Spirit's help to understand your word, to know the truth that you would have us to know, to take it, work it into our hearts, to apply it, that we might know you better, that we might love you more, that we might follow after the image of our elder brother Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. I heard someone uh, ex- uh, make this comparison recently about how uh, theology and studying and knowing Jesus is kind of like exploring the ocean, in that anyone can explore the ocean. A child wading into the, the first few feet of the waves at the beach is exploring the ocean. Now, they're not breaking new ground. They're not making brand new discoveries in the ocean, but they are dipping their toes in. They are getting to know. They are exploring the ocean. And in the same way, though, there's, there's a nearly infinite expanse to the ocean. You could be the child playing the waves. You could be James Cameron building a submarine and going to the bottom of the ocean depths. There's so much to explore. There is so much to know that any one person is never going to comprehend the ocean. So too, when it comes to our God, so too, when it comes to our Savior, Jesus. See, sometimes we can look at a phrase like our God and Savior, Jesus, and be like, yeah, duh, I get that. But there is so much depth there. There is so much richness there that we can we can just gloss over if we're not careful. We've been talking in Titus, what is the church for? The church is to be about Jesus. It's to be about our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, living as he has called us to live, knowing him more, following after him, sharing him with others, worshiping him, imitating him, growing into him who is the head of the church and on and on. So we're going to look at this phrase this morning. What does it mean that Jesus is our great God? What does it mean that he is our Savior? And what does it mean that he is ours? What does it mean that Jesus is our great God? Why is this good news that he is our great God? 
And there's, there's plenty of passages in the New Testament and Old that, that ascribe divinity to Jesus. This is widely recognized as one such passage. We read another earlier in John 1 where it says the word was God. In Romans 9, Paul says Christ, who is God over all. We heard it read earlier in Hebrews 1. Of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. In Peter's second letter, he uses this same phrase, our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And even all the way back in Isaiah's prophecy, as, as he's telling of the one who is going to come to save Israel, he talks about this child who is born, and he says that his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor and Mighty God. Many scholars have pointed out that, that the things that are ascribed to God, that, that describe what God do, are also ascribed to Jesus. It says that God created the world. And in the New Testament, it, we, we read that, that through Jesus, all things were created. We see God described as infinite and eternal. And in, in the book of Revelation, we see that Jesus says, I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. We see God described as, as mysterious and beyond our comprehension. And Jesus says, no one knows the Son except the Father. No one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom he has made him known. This is a profound truth, that, that Jesus is God. Gresham Machen put it this way, the same person who is known to history as Jesus of Nazareth existed before he became man from all eternity as infinite, eternal, and unchangeable God, the second person of the Holy Trinity. And this statement has, has a, a casualness to it. If you grew up in the church or if you've been in the church for any amount of time, you say Jesus is God, and it's just, of course, that makes sense. But there's, there's simultaneously this, this weight to it. To say that Jesus is God is a profound, surprising, noteworthy truth. And it should be that way. We should, it should just roll off our tongues. Jesus is God, but we should not forget, as it does so, the weight of what it is we are confessing. It's kind of like flying on an airplane, I don't know if any of you have flown recently. I'm the guy who sits, if I, if I get forced to have the window seat, I'm looking out, and as, as we're going along the runway, and we're off, I'm like, we're flying. I, I know some people think that's obnoxious, but I'm that guy. It's like, we're flying. It's like, no duh, TJ, we're on an airplane. But wait for a second. We are flying. Human beings. I don't have wings. We are participating in the miracle of flight. And it should be the same way. It's a casual statement, but it's a profound truth that Jesus is God. This means that all the power, all the, the constancy, all the wisdom, all the holiness, all the justice, all the purpose, and all the steadfast love that we see in God is in Jesus. What happens when we forget this. Sometimes it becomes only a casual statement for us. Sometimes we say Jesus is God. I'm, I'm happy to confess that. But when we say that, we're putting 
on Jesus the same amount of weight we put on God, which is to say, not much at all. It's no, no burden to confess that because God does not play into our lives. Sometimes we can forget this by, by trying to put a little daylight between Jesus and God and say, well, I just, I really like the way Jesus comes across in the New Testament. The, the Old Testament God, he's very harsh and, and, and he has a lot of judgment, but Jesus, he's just so much kinder and more merciful. And maybe if, if that sounds ridiculous to you, maybe you've heard or you have said, well, Jesus didn't really say anything about whatever, X, Y, Z. Whereas if it's in Scripture, Old Testament or New, if the Bible says it, then Jesus has said it. We can say Jesus was a great moral teacher, to which I respond, who cares? There are I'm not, I'm not joking. There are tons of great moral teachers. Why, why should he be so different? Because he is the only great moral teacher who can put his literal spirit inside of you to transform you. Many other teachers can give you many other insights that might be very helpful, but none of them can work their way into your very soul to bring about the change they are hoping to see in you. And he can only do that if he is God. And sometimes we forget this when we, we, we downplay the things that Jesus did say about caring for the poor, about anger, about forgiveness, about the way we handle our money. We say, yeah, 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 but he didn't mean that really. And as we downplay the weight of what he said, we subtly downplay his divinity in our minds. If Jesus is our great God, there is an invitation here, though. This invites us to, 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 to see this, this revelation. Well, Paul says, the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is, this is what one scholar called the, the, the climax of the Trinity. What will happen at the end of days when we see, when we see as, as best as our human minds can understand what it means that God exists in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and all are cooperating, and all are equal. That is the, the appearance that Paul is talking about here. And when we look forward to that, it should rec help us recognize all, all the little glories that we get distracted with. There's tons of, of little glories that we get enamored with, get drawn to, whether it's jobs or relationships or hobbies or money or whatever it is, there's all these things that can distract us. But when this appearance comes, this appearance of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, it's going to blow them all away. In our first apartment that Elizabeth and I lived in, uh, there was no built-in lighting. So we had a couple little lamps that when you flip the switch, it would turn on. And it did a decent job of lighting the room. But man, when the sun came out, there's this big sliding glass door and the sun came into view, it didn't matter if the lights were on or not. The apartment was lit up. 
Sometimes we get distracted with these little glories that when Jesus comes, we'll be blown away, will be redundant, unnecessary distractions. No goal, no person, no, no thing, no job, no achievement, no wealth, no feeling, no uh, reputation will stand up to the appearance of Jesus, the Son of God. And if Jesus is God, then he invites us to be humble. We live in, in a narcissistic, narcissistic culture that's all about me and all about mine, all about what I think, all about what I want to do. But Jesus, as God, undercuts and, and confronts all of that. It is not about you. It is not about me. It is about Jesus. And we might think, well, in the church, no, we're, we're, we don't struggle with that so much. How often do we say, well, well, things should really be done this way in the church? And by that, we mean my way. Or when we say, I, I don't see how a true Christian could disagree with me on this. And we elevate ourselves to a place of divinity, particularly where Jesus confronts what we want or the way that we think. Are we willing to be humble and say, Jesus you are God. So Jesus is our great God, but he is also our Savior. And this is good news. At least Paul seems to think it is good news because he repeats this phrase over and over and over and over again. In chapter 1, verse 3, he talks about the command of God, our Savior. In chapter 1, verse 4, he says, grace and peace from Christ Jesus, our Savior. In chapter 2, verse 10, he says, adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. Here in verse 13, he says, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. In chapter 3, 4, he says, goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior. And then he says in chapter 3, verse 6, that the Holy Spirit will be poured out through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Paul is is overwhelmed with this reality that, that God is our Savior and that Jesus is our Savior. And this, this appearance, as we said, is going to be the culmination of his salvation work, that, that full judgment will be made of evil and full vindication of righteousness for those who are in Jesus. We will see God, and as, as John puts it in his letter, we know that when God appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. This appearance of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And there's, there's a sense in which Jesus does little appearances to us and to our communities. When you came to knowledge of Jesus as Savior, he has revealed to himself some small glimpse of this eternal glory so that you understand that different communities get, get a vision for his holiness, for his glory at different times he appears to them. And this is good news because we so desperately need a Savior. I don't have to tell you that there are things in your life from which you need rescue. That there are things in your life that you are just crying out, I want to be done with this. 
I do not want this in my life. I do not want to have to deal with this. I do not want to have to suffer from this. We need a Savior. And the good news is that God reveals himself as a Savior, most notably here in his Son, Jesus. God is a God who is in the redemption business. He is a saving God. He has been working redemption from the beginning of creation. As soon as sin enters the world, the first thing he says is, I'm going to do something about that. I'm going to send a redeemer who's going to crush the head of Satan. And as it works through into the the time of Noah, when he looks out at humanity and, and says, this, these people, There's just so much sin. I'm going to wipe the slate clean, but I'm going to redeem that through Noah. Into the the patriarchs where he calls Abraham, Abram at that time, out of a pagan nation said, I'm going to redeem you and I'm going to bless the world through you. And through his sons, who all you look at were not necessarily the best group of guys, (laughs) made a lot of mistakes into, into his, his work in Egypt. If you're part of our discipleship program and you're reading about the Exodus where these people who were in bondage and he says, I'm going to redeem you and take you out of bondage and I'm going to bless you. And that same people who repeatedly forget again and again, we see in the book of Judges as, as he redeems them over and over and over again. And even when they say, God, you're, you're not really that good of a king. We want our own king. He blesses them with a good king over and over again. And as they're wayward, he sends them prophets to remind them that his redemption is coming all the way culminating in his son coming as a baby to redeem his people through a bloody, violent, brutal death on the cross. God is in the redemption business. But we can forget this. The Hebrews of Jesus' day forgot this because they misjudged who the Messiah was going to be. They knew there was a Messiah coming, but they didn't connect that this Messiah was not just a divine agent, someone that God was sending, but that this Messiah was going to be God himself, a man. And so they did not recognize Jesus when he came. But we can do similar things. When we worship Jesus as a savior in our own image, who shares our concerns, our, our methods, our cares, our priorities, our purposes, he, Jesus just, he seems to want the same kinds of things that I want. And the problem with that is, is that savior will never transform you. Why would he? You already have so much in common. And he definitely can't save you because he's imaginary. When we make that Jesus in our image, there is no hope. I heard someone recently talking about Jesus and, and how people always want to say, what, what personality type was Jesus? Whether it's the Enneagram or Myers-Briggs, what personality type was he? And this person said, all of them, all of them. He, he, he has all the strengths of all the personality types and none of the weaknesses because he is God. He is perfect and he is our savior, which is why so often when we read the gospels, we're like, what's Jesus going to do here? I didn't, I didn't see that coming because we project onto him. This is how I would have behaved. And Jesus says, I'm not your kind of savior. I am my kind of savior. We can forget this when we say, if if only 
this, then my life would be complete. If only I could find the right system or develop the right habits or get the right job or find the right person to marry or if, if only my kids would behave correctly. What we're saying then is, and I'm not the first person to have said this, what we're saying is if this were true, then Jesus would not have needed to come. All we needed was this one little tweak and everything would be fine. Jesus wouldn't have needed to come and he wouldn't have needed to die on the cross. And in fact, if he did, it would have been extraneous and perverse. What we're doing is we're setting ourselves up as Savior. Because if, if this circumstance was changed, then I, I don't even need you, Jesus, to handle this. But the truth is that Jesus is our Savior. And this invites us into believing him, to believe him when, when he says he wants us to have life and life never ending and bountiful life, to believe him when, when he calls us to certain things and to obey him when he asks of us certain things, even when it conflicts with what we want and what we desire. This invites us to have hope in the midst of struggle, in the midst of pain, in the midst of tedium or boredom or, or just the, the, the looking at the future and saying, I don't see anything changing, to look beyond that to the appearance of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, and the appearance of his glory and having hope. This, this blessed day that Paul talks about should be a motivation that, that we will fully see Jesus as Savior, should be a motivation for us through all kinds of struggle. My kids' birthdays, my oldest two, their birthdays are five days apart, and their birthdays are coming up here soon. And I tell you what, man, for the last month, that's been a motivator. <laughs> through good and bad, through a good day at school, through a bad day at school, through struggle, through chores. Hey, I, but my birthday is in this many days. It's coming up. That's the same kind of image here. The, our Savior is coming. We don't have the exact date, but our Savior is coming motivate us through all kinds of struggle. If Jesus is our Savior and he is our God, we have someone who is not only willing to comfort us and to be with us in the midst of dark nights, but someone who is able to be there as well. So Jesus is our great God and he is our Savior, but he is also ours. And this can seem kind of redundant, but, but this is a theme throughout Scripture, that, that Jesus, that God, is ours. It's repeated over and over again. You will be my people, and I will be your God throughout Scripture. God both made us his, but also gave himself to us. This is not like a toddler, right? A toddler virtually guaranteed, one of the first words the toddler is going to learn is mine, right? Mine. And it's not like, dear sir, I believe you have acquired an object that belongs to me. It's mine. Like, that's normally how it's yelled. Sometimes we can view God that way. It's like, mine. He belongs to me. But it's not like that. Instead, it's like a toddler, and I have some recent experience of this, who's getting picked up from nursery or daycare or something like that, sees his dad and says, Dada! 
and runs. That's the kind of mindness that God is for us. He is ours. There's belonging. There's affection. There's deep love. And there's good news. If you just read through what we read, heard read earlier from Hebrews, that he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. That guy is ours. His throne is forever and ever, and the scepter of uprightness is the scepter of his kingdom. That guy is ours. He laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the works of his hands. That guy is ours. You are the same, and your years will have no end. That guy is ours. We know him. And still we forget this sometimes. Sometimes we can treat Jesus like, like a waffle iron. Right? Some of you guys are just now remembering that you have a waffle iron. We never use the waffle iron. We forget it because it has no impact on our lives. Jesus can give us much more blessing, as, as wonderful as waffles are. Jesus can give us much more blessing, but we can forget through, through disuse, through not leaning on him, through not looking to him, through not trusting him. We can forget of his power and his connection to us. We can become lonely we can feel distant from God. We can feel distant from the people around us, from his people, because we, we drift wherever life blows us instead of returning again and again and again to the well of the one who is ours. So what is this inviting us to? This is inviting us to be recaptivated by Jesus, to, to at once again return to our first love, it's not more to do like, well, here's the checklist you have to do to become recaptivated. This is like having someone in your life, whether it's a friend or a spouse or a family member who you just love spending time with. And so, yeah, you have to do things. You have to set the calendar. You have to drive there. You have to make the phone call. You have to do whatever to, to make that connection happen. But you're, you want to because of the deep affection that you have for that person. Often we just get distracted by lesser loves, what some, some have called disordered loves. We're all captivated by something. We're all connected, enraptured by something or someone. And all of those things that we love draw us in and they all ask something of us. And Jesus too is asking something of us. He is saying, you are mine. But the good news in that is that I love you. I'm saving you and I am transforming you. And so this Jesus, our great God and Savior, is, is calling us to be just what Paul says here, a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Let's be captivated by our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we can be bored sometimes with this truth of Jesus as God and Savior. 
but too, so too, Father, we can be overwhelmed by it. I pray that the latter would be the case, that the weight of this truth, that the implications of the fact that, that your son, the second member of the Trinity, became a man to save us because of your great love for us would overwhelm us, would draw us into him, to look to him more, to love him more deeply, and to worship him all the greater. Do what we ask, for we ask it in his name. Amen.